well, what do you know about coping? Don't look at me all spiritual. We all have coping mechanisms. I won't name any of mine that are unhealthy this morning. I don't want to encourage that. You know, coping mechanisms are the strategies people often use in the face of stress and or trauma to help manage painful or difficult emotions. They can help people adjust to stressful events while helping them maintain their emotional well-being, says one source. And there are good ones like leisure. I didn't say escapism. I said leisure. Uh, exercise and gathering support. And there are bad ones like risk-taking, numbing, yes, even self-harm. It made me ask, do we need more or better coping mechanisms today? Is that our first step? What about the big picture? What about overall healing and hope? We could go about facing life's realities by treating the symptoms and often get the same results. Maybe that's you this morning. You, as you look back over the last week, the last month, the last year, you're still coping using the same methods, but getting the same results. But what if there's something bigger that needs to be treated first? What if there's someone who offered us a lasting solution and true hope and encouragement in this fallen, sad world? This morning, I bring you no message of therapy, thank God, so that you can better deal with life. That's not what I do. No, I want to offer you new life and real hope this morning from God's word, one that can heal the soul and ultimately leads to the resurrection of the body. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. It's on 975, 976 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. It will help you to... Have that open as we go through God's word this, together this morning. Jesus' identity has been Mark's primary concern from the opening scenes of his gospel. And one of the marks of this book is an, it has such eyewitness account, you know, irrelevant details in it. Mark is giving us Peter's firsthand, the Apostle Peter's firsthand reporting, and we can know that this story which is all about the power of Jesus, really happened looking at those particular elements. It's a fascinating book. And each part of the story Mark tell, that he tells reveals a little bit more of who Jesus is, his power, his purpose, and his self-understanding. Mark is revealing to us Jesus gradually, chapter by chapter, like an expert and faithful reporter. And he wants to tell us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is God the Son. As we narrow into the context here this morning, after relating four-word parables in the previous sections, Mark now gives us four mighty deed parables for us to consider. They are historical events, but they are to be interpreted in light of who Jesus is, what Mark is revealing to us about Jesus. 
And the same power that made the world in the first place is now on display in Jesus. And that's what we've seen in the previous two accounts of him having authority over the sea and power over the demonic powers. And the themes of death, fear, and faith, and, power, and, and the power of Jesus are all present in these sections from the end of chapter 4 through chapter 5. And the author shows that sinners are always in danger of dying, and they are separated from God in sin. But hope is given to those in, this, in these narratives most open to receiving Jesus' power in their lives and who recognize their own desperate need of Jesus. So Mark is clear. Jesus is equal to any threat that may shatter human life. He's greater than it. And Jesus has the power to bring restoration, wholeness, reversing the results of defilement and ostracism. And his miracles demonstrate that the arrival of the kingdom of God brings hope of restoration and renewal to a falling, fallen creation. Hear now God's word, Mark chapter 5, verse 21 now. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. And one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She heard about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion, with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kaum, 
which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up, walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Both of these accounts here concern females who are in hopeless situations and both relate to ceremonial impurity according to the Mosaic law and in the end they are identified as daughters. And yet there is also the inclusion of Jairus here, a very well-to-do and known man among the community. Mark wants us to see the issue of trusting Christ very plainly here. And so here's the central point for you. It's there for you in your bulletin. We are all poor and needy sinners. We are all poor and needy sinners. Therefore, let us put our trust in Jesus, who has authority over sickness and death. Who has authority over sickness and death. Two points this morning. Let's get into point number one. Sickness reveals our need for trust, for trust, to say trusting Christ's power to heal and cleanse. Sickness reveals our need for trusting Christ's power to heal and cleanse. First subpoint there, there is no one immune from the effects of the fall. There is no one immune from the effects of the fall. Verse 21 and 25, we see two different ends of the social spectrum. Two main characters in the section of Mark occupy opposite ends of the economic, social, and religious spectrum. Jairus, a man of means, distinguished as a leader of the synagogue, which is mentioned multiple times there, just to be clear, in the text. He is actually named in the text. You get his first name. He was like an elder in the Jewish congregation there. He has honors that he can openly and and in in special treatment, approached Jesus with a direct request. By contrast, the woman in the passage is is nameless, and her her ailment, well, it it makes her ritually unclean according to the Mosaic law. She could not just run up freely and do what Jairus did. But notice the text. Jairus comes... He falls and he begs. He's an example that not all of Israel's leaders opposed Jesus. I want to note that. Not all of them did. And he took a risk here, politically, to some extent, to seek the help of Jesus. And the drama of this scene is that of a father's heart breaking for his little girl who's dying. And he requests that Jesus would come lay hands on her. That was a a means of healing in the ancient world. And right next to him is an unnamed woman. And to the reader, she should jump out to us who know the Bible, who've read the Bible, who understand the drama of the text here, that she is impure, dishonored, yes, you can see here too, destitute. Two different extremes that we see here in this situation. The, the stories are sandwiched together showing how all are actually in need of Jesus no matter their status. 
all of this does not present an insurmountable barrier to prevent Jesus from helping. From a biblical worldview, human death is not a natural part of an endless cycle of life. I don't care what the Lion King says. That's not the biblical view. Death is a tragic intrusion into God's created intention for humanity. Death is the consequence and penalty of human sin. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. From the moment Adam and Eve and their fall, God launched though, a rescue plan to restore true life, eternal life, to any who would turn to him in faith. And the prophets in the Old Testament predicted the day that God would destroy the shroud that envelops all peoples and the sheet that covers all nations, which is death. He will swallow up death forever, according to Isaiah 25. For the New Testament writers, that day has been inaugurated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So just because you have health and means today, you may have that today. You may feel strong today. You may have a good portfolio today. I should not fool you into thinking in any way that you are the captain of your fate and that somehow you don't need Christ. And just because you have poor health and feel defiled because of perhaps your sins uh, you've committed, you should not be fooled into thinking that you are beyond the help of Jesus. You're not. Dovetailing together these stories of two such desperate individuals conveys that neither being male Ritually impure or uh, religiously well regarded, having no means, provides any uh, advantage or disadvantage in approaching Jesus. You can both come to Christ. Everyone has sinned and everyone is condemned in their sin already. No one is righteous and healthy in the sight of God. No, not one. Everyone needs Jesus. Second subpoint. The effects of sickness, the effects of sickness pictures for us the problem of sin. The effects of sickness pictures for us the problem of sin. Verse 26, we see the woman here has a very serious illness. Notice that this woman for 12 years has had a flow of blood, a chronic bleeding disorder of some kind, probably menstrual in nature. And like the previous context concerning the demoniac, she here is portrayed as beyond human help. Don't miss that. Nobody can help her. She is walking pollution according to the ceremonial laws as the life force drains from her. According to this very particular, to very particular ceremonial laws of the old covenant that you read about in Leviticus, this woman's impurity is transmissible to others until it is cured. It was a waiting game. She was put outside the camp. Anyone who has contact with her becomes ceremonially unclean, can't go to worship, and is required in the Old Covenant to go through a regimen before re-entering the worship community. She is therefore similar to the leper as one suffering from ritual uncleanliness and is excluded from normal social relations. As I mentioned before, she is, the, the author wants you to understand, she's outside the camp. She suffers from an irregular discharge that makes her impure, according to Leviticus 15. You see, according to the law, she is not to touch anything, any holy thing, or enter the sanctuary. She is isolated, could not attend festivals, according to Numbers 5. 
Four times in the text, her touch is mentioned. Four times it's mentioned there. The original audience would have seen her in the text and would have been, is she going to touch him? The Old Covenant laws, ceremonial laws, taught theological lessons about the holiness of God and the sinful uncleanliness of man. The truth of the matter is that all of us in our quote-unquote morality, quote-unquote good works, are unclean to stand before God Almighty. What was foreshadowed and pictured in those ceremonial laws was to teach a theological lesson. That's what we're supposed to feel here in, in trying to you know, trying to find wholeness, by the way, a wholeness of heart outside of Christ. There's no hope to heal that outside of Christ. This careworn woman has been, become impoverished from the fruitless attempts by her physicians to heal her. Her condition makes childbearing hopeless and marriage next to impossible. She was without hope in the world. She has no honor and believes she must sneak up to Jesus from behind, thinking that she has to, you know, quietly sneak in there, get healed, because Jesus would never grant direct requests of help to her, to the likes of her. So regardless of their differences, both Jairus and this woman have heard about Jesus, they're desperate, and they've run out of options. And the text reveals She's been under the care of many doctors, as you can see there, has spent everything she had. And some of you, perhaps listening this morning, you, you know this discouragement. Some of you know what it's like to have gone to physician after physician after physician and spent thousands of dollars to not receive much help. And when someone is quarantined, do we ever stop and think about the picture that represents? We should have a strong mental image of that this, over the last year, shouldn't we? When you see this sick child or this sick woman here in the text, you get a picture of how God sees us in our hearts and souls. He sees our sinful hearts and stained souls, and we are separated from God. We cannot draw near to his holy mountain in our sin. We are profane in our sin. We are profane in our rebellion against him. We can't just turn a blind eye to it. He can't just turn a blind eye to it, should I say. And we are unable to save and heal ourselves from sin. God can't turn a blind eye to our sin. Friends, can a spouse turn a blind eye to an adulterous, to their adulterous spouse? Can they just turn a blind eye to that? No. Sin is the plague of human life. We're all sick spiritually. Dead in sins and transgressions, actually. Rebels in our souls against our maker. It is the disease we are all born with in our hearts, in our heart of hearts. <laughs> and we none love God. We have all committed unrighteousness in this, in this world in word, thought, and deed. We have all loved ourselves and lived for ourselves. We've, we've expected the world to conform to us. We've done it since we were little children, grumbling against our parents, rebelling against our parents, asking them and the whole world to center around us. Worship us. Our sin permeates our minds, our hearts, and, and wills. We are demanding and we are consumers at na in nature. We are born in sin and, and we act according to our desires rather than God's desires. Friends, let's not be confused that our, our desires are always so pure and unmixed. That's just not true. 
while we are capable of some good, it's not done for the glory of God. Sin, just like this woman's disease, takes the life, though, out of us all. Sin never adds to life. It always diminishes life. It actually dehumanizes us. Greed dehumanizes us as image bearers, and so does pride and lust and strife and hatred. And sexual immorality dehumanizes us down to our basest desires as our identity and goal. The wages of sin against our holy maker is death. God is righteous and good. Praise to his name. Sin will not go unpunished. Everything about sin in us reveals we have a foul discharge, an illness that is defiling. We too should be cast outside the camp, unable to enjoy the fellowship of peace. The difference between this woman and many today is that she had a sense of her desperate need. Many today in the world don't realize how desperate they are in their sins. They don't realize they are more desperate than this woman is physically. They are separated from God. And they are living as if God is not holy. And so perhaps they have sought other outlets, other doctors, you can put that in quotes, other measures to help them. Some of you perhaps know this spiritually where you've searched for answers in this world to cure your heart through pleasure-seeking intellectual stimulation, secular therapies that really exalt you and through the pers- and through the pursuit perhaps of your dream life here on earth. Perhaps you, today you've tried to seek out healing through being righteous through your own good works in religion for your soul. But here's the truth about salvation. You like this woman and me, like this woman, have to come to an end of ourselves. And our, we have to come to an end of godless solutions. And we have to run to Christ as the only hope. We have to see that Jesus is to be approached alone and that we need him. Which brings me to this next subpoint: Faith in Christ alone heals. Faith in Christ alone heals. Verses 27 through 34 now. You'll notice there, 27 to 28, she approaches Jesus secretly here. She may have felt ashamed because of her condition or perhaps feared rebuke by the crowds or the disciples for touching the rabbi and her impurity. And she approaches Jesus as an outcast, desperate for healing, but unworthy, you know, unworthy of his time or attention. She's desperate. That's how we approach Jesus, as poor and needy sinners. Some folks preach a gospel where somehow Jesus is so lucky to have them. By the time they get through preaching, people approach Jesus like, here I am, Jesus, I guess I'll bless you with my approval. But they they pitch Jesus like a sales pitch. That's not the gospel. That's not you in desperation. Jesus is not desperate for us because we're so worthy. No, we're desperate for him. We need Jesus. Biblical faith reaches out in truth. It reaches out in desperation unto Jesus as your only hope as a hell-bent sinner, as one outcast, doomed for eternal outcast, unless Jesus intervenes. It's not our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith that heals and saves us. It's not how strong her faith is. It's the one she's laid hold of. 
she had to lay hold of Christ, and friends, so must you and I. Don't miss this. When she reached out to touch him in faith, trust, there was a collision. Her uncleanliness collided with the power of God, and guess who won that collision? Praise the Lord, it was Jesus. The only solution for such a problem of our fallen condition is a greater power. Notice here, she touched him. Her touch upon Jesus causes the hemorrhaging to immediately stop. He is not made unclean by her touch, but she is made whole. Jesus cannot be defiled by her because Jesus has the power to cleanse it all. He is not made unclean. She is made clean. I love this scene in verses 30 through 32. Jesus totally calls her out in front of everybody there. You know, some people are too so sensitive that I can't believe he would do this. This is exactly, this is beautiful. Jesus knows someone has touched him in faith. Power has gone out, and yet his humanity is on display here. He can't see the person. And notice how the disciples lack the sensitivity of the situation. They asked, who touched you? Everyone. Everyone's touching you. It does appear to be deliberate that he stops to provoke a response here. His searching provides the woman an opportunity to come forward and bear witness to what's happened to her. And notice, too, that she also falls before Jesus. And because she's overwhelmed with the power of Christ to heal and restore, it's just like the disciples when they were trembling at the power of Christ when he rebuked the storm. She wasn't, the shaking here is not about the public testimony. It's that she knows that she just encountered the Lord. She tells the whole truth here, the text says, and in doing so, she proclaims the good news that is testifying to the power of Jesus to restore, to save. And she had hoped that in such a great crowd uh, that uh, it would be an impersonal situation that she could just go unnoticed. But what's striking here is that Jesus calls her out and she's forced to make a public acknowledgement of what happened. Why does Mark highlight this? I think it's already setting the stage that Jesus commands us to go public in our profession of faith in him. When people get up and profess the truth about God, about sin, about Christ in their lives, in accord with the scriptures, God is glorified and others are helped. As you can see here, giving your public testimony unto Christ can be a bit scary, but nevertheless, we are called to go public. We have... Taking, we have taken personal faith to a, probably in America to a too far degree. We've forgotten the public nature of it. While we sing, I come to the garden alone, it's good. We want to encourage prayer time. There's also public display as well. And Jesus said to, to his disciples, make disciples and baptize them. When a person is baptized in front of the congregation, that is their going public moment. Notice that Jesus addresses her as daughter there. You know, verse 34, as best as I can tell, is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus does this, this account. Do not let the the common term daughter pass you by how sweet this moment is. That God would call you his daughter. That he would call you, gentlemen, his sons. Adoption is... In view here, brought, she's been brought back into the community of faith. 
Mark is careful to clarify that the healing resulted from her faith, just to be clear. It wasn't just like people just need to run up and touch Jesus and there was superstition going on. No, no, no. The text makes it clear. Jesus states that to her. It's her trust, not some magical ritual. He healed her in response to her trust in him. Jesus said, just to be clear, because you trusted. And he tells her to go in peace. Her faith in him healed. But that verb, translated healed, can also be rendered saved. And Jesus is saying to her, your faith is what in me is what healed you. And now that you know that, you're in a life-transforming relationship with me. You know, she wasn't expecting any of this. And friends, you, may, you need to understand, Jesus may ask you, ask of you far more than you originally planned to give, but he can give you infinitely more than you dared to ask or think. Jesus brought her into a relationship with the Father, with himself, not just physical healing. She needs to do nothing else but go in peace. I mean, can you feel the beauty of the scene here? This woman was separated from the community visibly in her impurity, and God has welcomed her back in restorative grace. The arrival of the reign of the kingdom of God brings both physical restoration and spiritual forgiveness. The peace that she is given here is not just about restoration and wholeness, but the Lord, excuse me, with the Lord, but with the community of God's people as well. You know, Jesus came to bring reconciliation vertically between us and the Father and with him in the spirit, but also horizontally with those who are in God's household and himself. Peace with them. Let's go to point two. We are all poor and needy sinners, therefore let us put our trust in Jesus, who has authority over sickness and death. Number two, death. Death reveals our need for trusting Christ's power over death. Death reveals our need for trusting Christ's power over death. First subpoint: enduring belief is called for. Enduring belief is called for. I'm th- focusing now on 35 and 36. 35, we are given a great shift emotionally in the passage. Just, just you know, imagine the, the, the emergency beam brake being pulled as you're, you're going down the highway. There's a jolt that happens in 35. We go from celebration, hooray, uh, this woman's been healed and she's testified and She's with the Lord. She's, God's accepted her and his family through her faith in Christ to verse 35. The news of the daughter of Jairus, that she has died. One, one person's joy in this scene is now another's agony. Isn't that life in the church? Isn't that life in the, in the body of Christ? You know, one person's news of encouragement, of blessings, health, children, marriage, you name it. And then all of a sudden, that same body, sad news of sorrow and pain and death. What a tough scene this is here. I want you to notice something here. Jesus is not hurried. And we often feel exactly like Jairus right here. Can you imagine he's 
He's a very important fellow. Jesus, he's got Jesus in tow. Let's go to my, we're going to, and this woman stops and this entire scene takes place while his daughter is dying. We can be perhaps tempted to impatience. We can think maybe God's delaying on us irrationally, unconscionably, inordinately. Waiting on God is not always easy. And mostly because we expect things from God that we shouldn't. God's sense of timing will confound ours. God's sense of timing will confound ours. No matter what culture we're from. And his grace rarely operates according to our schedule. Maybe you've had that conversation with the Lord like I have. Lord, this is not in in my plan. That's not in my five-year plan. That's not part of my bigger picture here. I've I put all this down, and we've got it backwards. We've got it wrong. Was Jairus to be upset that God chose to bless someone else ahead of him? What would you do if you saw Jesus stop and heal someone else while your child was dying? Put yourself in his sandals. How would you feel in that moment? Would you begrudge the woman that had been healed? Would you begrudge God? But notice here in the passage, it jumps out, even this tragedy is not outside of God's sovereign purposes. And the delay caused by the interruption, well, it will result in an even greater miracle. The situation is even more helpless than the previous one. And some think it's a waste of time here. Mark uh, wants us to see that we need to get to Jesus, uh, get Jesus to the hopeless. Yes, even the most hopeless amongst us. In verse 36, Jesus calls on Jairus not to fear, but to trust, to believe. You, You know, struggles with anxiety don't go away. But what we need to bring alongside of our anxieties and fears is a growing faith in God. Sometimes we feed the anxiety more than we feed our trust in the Lord. We need to bring alongside a persevering trust in the purposes and power of God. In this life, fear and faith can be ongoing actions. And Jesus calls Jairus to put aside the greater fear caused by the girl's death. And to progress to even greater trust in him. Where do you need to be called to enduring faith and faithfulness? Where might you today need to be called to enduring faith and faithfulness? As we thought about briefly in the little series I did there for two weeks in Hebrews, are we taking our pains more seriously than we take our creator. Because if we do, we take those more serious than our holy creator, we will misinterpret a lot of life. 
Are we making more of what we don't have than what we have by his sovereign hand? Are we missing where God has ordained a weight for us where later on he will unveil glories yet untold? If we would look at the sovereign hand of God more and wait on him, we will see that he is worth it, wouldn't we? So as the author of Hebrews warned us last week, we, don't, we, we need to look for that, that root of unbelief and be rid of it. That bitter root of unbelief. Not letting it grow, but to put our trust in Christ's rule, his sovereignty and power. Next subpoint. Cynicism is cast out. Cynicism is cast out. Verses 37 through 40. Jesus, as you can see, the text takes a few disciples with him. What a privilege it was for them. And you and I are also privileged to learn of this account. They are on their way to what appears to be the beginnings of funeral proceedings. And I want to highlight Jesus' words here about the girl being asleep. Sleep is a common euphemism for death in the New Testament, pointing to its temporary nature for believers. And Jesus has this in view, this girl as being in a temporary pause. In verse 40, I want you to notice that they're the immediate change from mourning to mocking in the crowd. Did you see that? They laughed at him. They go from mourning to mocking. That's a big, that's a big shift, isn't it? It indicates the superficiality of the people's grief and highlights their unbelief. Sometimes we can fail to see how fake we can be. It's easy to look at the crowd and go, I can't believe them. Ah, We can be like that too. Do you have real love? Look at the, their, their love and their, their love and belief are revealed for what they are. Do you have a real love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Our church covenant says we are to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and in speech. And in order for us to do this, we have to draw near to one another. Friends, do you know much about the celebrations and the sufferings in your own church body? And, and, and sometimes we give ourselves a pass. Some of us will think, well, I'm good at celebrating. I don't do the whole morning with, morning, morning with others. Or I do pretty good at the morning aspect. I, don't, I struggle with celebrating with people. There, you've got to do both. You've got to do both. Perhaps you like the sad stories but don't do well with rejoicing with others. Or perhaps you do well only with celebrating but you don't want to sit down and care and mourn with those who are sad. Anywho, these people were not being genuine in their grief and mourning, and it's highlighted here. Look at the text. And you see what happens. Jesus puts these fake people out. They're cast out and removed from witnessing one of the greatest miracles our Lord ever worked. And sometimes we don't connect the relationship between our unbelief and our lack of love, but we need to. Read 1 John. Their lack of love for others and genuine grief for them really exposes their lack of trust and belief in God and in his word. So let this be a warning to us all. And those who do not truly believe the Lord and don't genuinely love his people are in a very scary position. Cynicism towards God's work and grace will only be exposed. Confess it, forsake it, 
Take it to Jesus. Cast it on him and ask him to forgive you and to save you for for his name's sake. Last sub-point. Resuscitation is not enough, but Jesus' resurrection is. Resuscitation is not enough, but Jesus' resurrection is. What a glorious scene here. Again, the drama of the scene, Jesus ignoring the ceremonial laws because he is Lord over them, he is God in the flesh, touches the dead girl. He is not made impure, but she is given resuscitation, new life. His, his little words, his words there really are, are with, I try to put it in our vernacular, be like, honey, wake up, rise. It's like a father going, wake up his daughter, or a mom waking up their daughter. Just that rise. No enchantments, just rise. And she rose. And they got her something to eat. I mean, isn't this something? When we go to Jesus, we get far more than we ever had in mind. The sick woman did, and now so does Jairus. The delayed work for the greatest good and the glory of God is what's happening. People in the room see a resuscitation back to life. This girl is raised to live now a perishable life. This is not the final resurrection. She, like the healed woman, is healed to go about her life now in this world. And Jesus didn't want to make a spectacle here, as you can see. This time, he tells them with strict orders to be quiet about this, not to stir up any further false ideas about his ministry as Messiah. Why? Because his eyes were clearly on Calvary and the resurrection to come. By raising this girl back to life, he provides a preview of the coming victory that will be achieved through his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. You see, Jesus came to live and die in our place where he would take on our sin guilt and shame and defeat death for us. At Calvary, Jesus would do, do more than take on our infirmities. He would take on our death, the wages of sin, our sin, and the wages of sin is death, and Jesus came to take it all on for us, for any who would turn to him today and put their trust in him. He came to take on our infirmities and sin, to make peace between us and the Father. At Calvary, let me spell out, Jesus, God the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, equal with the Father in full eternal es- essence, came to us in true humanity in perfect accord with the one will of God to be the substitute of any and all who would turn from their sins and trust in his person, work, and power alone for salvation from God's just wrath against sin. On the cross, Jesus was made the most ill in the sense that he took on our sin and our defilement. And as the Son of Man, he suffered on Calvary the wrath of God. He was not separated from God, but separated from the blessedness of God as he endured the full wrath of God. Jesus, unlike us, deserved the full blessed time and favor of God, but for our sake, endured the wrath of God as he was nailed to the cross, naked and shamed for our sins, for the sins of any who would turn to him. He was raised from the dead. The Bible tells us in victory because he successfully satisfied the just demands of God as only he could do. 
So friends, when we're talking about Christ and the preview of things to come, we're looking at the one who has the authority to heal us eternally. The one, if we put our trust in him, the Bible promises us that one day, those of us who die before he comes in, he's going to raise us to new glorified bodies. And to those who are remaining when he comes again, they will be transformed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when Christ returns. Jesus provided the payment and righteousness required to heal forever and restore forever any who repent and trust in him. Are you upset and sick in your sins today? Do you know today in, in, in reality and truth that you in your sins are without hope? If you know that in truth and you know who Christ is, then come to Christ. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus alone. Say, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, forgive me. I believe that you are God the Son, lived and died in my place, raised on the third day so that I could be saved. I can only cling to you. I cannot claim my own righteousness. Forgive me according to your promises, Lord. Put your trust in Christ. Friends, don't, don't think that we need to begin our lives with first and fundamentally thinking about how to cope. Start with Christ. Know that he can heal you from sin and one day he will make all things new. He will heal us forevermore completely. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we do praise you for the hope and, and grace and power that we see displayed that you have displayed in yourself, in your son. We are poor and needy, desperate sinners, Lord. You are worthy of our complete devotion, our waiting and patience, because, Lord, your salvation, Lord, such a, such a great salvation will be unveiled for every eye to see. Help us to stay fixed on you, to endure in our faith. We love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.